Welcome to Indie Jigsaw Bits and Pieces. This is where we take all the little pieces of why Scotland needs to be independent, what kind of country we want to be, how we're going to get there, and put them together to see what that picture looks like. It's Indie Jigsaw Bits and Pieces. Hello and welcome to the Bits and Pieces podcast for February 2022. I'm Fiona McGregor from the Indie Live podcast team. And as always, I'm going to be sharing our selection of the most interesting little topical themes that we've found throughout the month. I'm recording this with six inches of snow outside, but we've been glued pretty much to the telly all day because of the invasion of Ukraine by Putin and his forces. It seems only right that we start this month's podcast with the First Minister's statement on today's events. First Minister. Thank you, Presiding Officer. Parliament will discuss the unfolding situation in Ukraine later and express its solidarity with a country whose very existence as an independent democracy is now under attack. However, at this first sitting since Russia's full-scale invasion, I wanted to condemn in the strongest possible terms the unprovoked imperialist aggression of Vladimir Putin. There can be no doubt that he must now face the severest of consequences, sanctions on him and his network of oligarchs and agents, their expulsion from countries across the world, sanctions on his banks and their ability to borrow and function, sanctions on his energy and mineral companies, and here in the UK, immediate clean-up of the swirl of dirty Russian money in the City of London. But just as Putin must face and feel the wrath of the democratic world, the people of Ukraine must feel and not just hear our support and our solidarity. The world must now help and equip Ukraine to defend itself and resist Russian aggression. We must ensure humanitarian aid and assistance and we must all stand ready to offer refuge and sanctuary where necessary for those who may be displaced. This is a critical juncture in history, perhaps the most dangerous and potentially defining moment since the Second World War. We live in this moment, but it is true to say that historic precedents will be set in the hours and the days to come. These will determine the new norms of what is acceptable or not in our international order. Putin is an autocrat. His control of the apparatus of state and of the economy, the military and the media can make his power seem impregnable. But as with most strong men leaders, underneath the veneer of power lies insecurity and fear. Fear of democracy, of freedom, fear of the kind of popular uprisings witnessed over recent years in Ukraine ever happening in Russia. And on that point, presiding officer, let us not assume that he is now acting in the name of the Russian people. We must ensure that anti-Putin forces within Russia have our encouragement and moral support too. Future generations will judge the actions the world takes in this moment. There are, of course, many complexities, but at its most fundamental, this is a clash between oppression and autocracy on the one hand and freedom and democracy on the other. We must all ensure that freedom and democracy prevail. Meanwhile, down in Westminster, at the embarrassing bear pit that we laughingly call PMQs, Ian Blackford MP was sharing a few home truths with the PM. Leader of the SNP, Ian Blackford. Yeah. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Yesterday, 
This side of the House made clear that the SNP stands united against the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and this needs to be included with tougher and stronger sanctions. But as the Chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee rightly said, we should not be waiting for Russia to attack others to clean up the corruption and Russian money which has been fuelling in the UK. Under the Tories, a sewer of dirty Russian money has been allowed to run through London for years. I went to the Prime Minister, the then Foreign Secretary, in 2017, and I raised the issue of limited partnerships, 113 of which have been used to move $20.8 billion out of Russian banks. Corruption on an industrial scale. Why did the Prime Minister do nothing back then, and why is he still doing nothing now? Mr Speaker, that meeting was five years ago and I offered to work with the Prime Minister five years ago and nothing has happened. The truth is that Russian oligarchs who give the right people in power a golden handshake have been welcomed into London for years. Their activities weren't stopped, they were encouraged and plenty of these golden handshakes just so happened to find their way into the coffers of the Conservative Party. Mr Speaker, £2.3 million, in fact, since the Prime Minister took office. A leading American think tank has publicly raised concerns, and I quote, about the close ties between Russian money and the United Kingdom's ruling Conservative Party are a block to stronger sanctions. How can our allies trust this Prime Minister to clean up dirty Russian money in the UK when he won't even clean up his own political party? Will he finally commit, finally commit to giving up the 2.3 million his party has raised in from Russian oligarchs? Well, I think we can guess the answer to that one, can't we? Meanwhile, people are starting to feel the Brexit-fuelled effects of the rising cost of heat, rising cost of food. In Glasgow and Edinburgh, the STUC and the People's Assembly organised a demo to protest against the imposition of these cost of living increases and the impact on the the most vulnerable in our society. Independence Live was along there to live stream the event. There was a good turnout in George Square, despite the fact the rain was lashing down and two very good speeches, I thought. So we're going to play you both of those. First, we have Ros Foye, who's the General Secretary of the Scottish Trade Union Congress. And then we have Tommy Shepherd, uh, SNP MP. Thank you very much, everybody who's come out here today in the rain. It's good to see people for so many different groups, people for trade unions, people for community campaigns, different political groups. And uh, people for the Yes Movement as well, because that's what we need. We need to unite and we need a broad coalition to fight against the cuts and the cost of living crisis that we're all facing together. Today, we are here to start the fight back. We're here to say to our governments that enough is enough. They made us pay for the banking crisis with austerity and cuts. They made us pay for the pandemic with our own lives. Poverty pay for key workers, not enough PPE. And throughout that period, the richest 1% doubled their income. 
make us pay for the energy crisis. And we have to tell them very clearly, we are not paying for this crisis. We can pay, we won't pay, and you must pay. The exploitation of working people has to end now. We can no longer accept a broken economic system that doesn't do a job for working people. Pay has been suppressed for decades, while the rich have sucked profits out of our economy and continue to do so. And do you know what? They're going to keep continuing to do so unless we do something about it and we stop them. And how dare the bankers tell us, how dare they tell us that we have to exercise restraint. If they had exercised restraint and not had excessive greed for these past decades, they wouldn't have run our country into the ground. And good hard-working families wouldn't have to choose between feeding their children and heating their homes. So now is not the time for restraint. Now is the time for trade unionists and workers to stand up and fight back. And the politicians, the corporate bosses and the billionaires are not going to listen to us. They're not going to share this country's wealth unless we make them. So we need to build a big, broad and angry alliance. We need to build and mobilise power and that starts in our workplaces and it starts in our communities. And we need to keep getting people out on the streets in the weeks and months ahead until we build an alliance that's so big and so powerful that the politicians and the bosses won't have a choice but to listen. The changes we need are many. We need to make sure that we demand an immediate freeze on energy bills. We need to fund that freeze by taxing the excessive profits made by the energy companies and the multinationals. We need to end the endemic poverty pay that our workers are working under. Right across Scotland's economy, it's an absolute scandal that 30% of working adults in Scotland are the only ones earning over 25,000 a year. And almost half of working adults in Scotland earn under 15,000 pounds a year. That is a scandal and we need to stop it. And we need to ensure that our essential services like transport, like energy, like care, that these essential services are publicly owned and publicly controlled. So instead of hikes on our national insurance and taxing the poor, let's tell them to tax the rich. Let's tell them to tax the billionaires and the multinationals. They can afford it. They've been getting away with literally murder for years now. So let's think about this 
we need to mobilise, we need to movement build, we need to organise and work hard and build a broad alliance. When we join together, we have more power than we can dare to imagine. And they cannot afford to ignore us because at the end of the day, we are the many and they are the few. Thank you. Afternoon, friends. This has been a long, bitter two years where thousands of our friends and relatives have died and many millions have suffered isolation and illness due to the pandemic. Well, let's be, un let's be clear, not everyone has had a bad pandemic. There are more, more millionaires and more billionaires in Britain than there have ever been. Stock prices on the stock exchange have never been higher. And increasing costs of property have meant those with the most capital are laughing all the way to the bank. While working class people have suffered and tried to keep our society going. That is the situation in which we find ourselves today. And now the Tory government and the ruling class in Britain are going to use the aftermath of COVID to rebalance things even further. Already, Britain is the most unequal country of all of the developed countries in Northern Europe, the most unequal. And this government is about to make things considerably worse. That is what the cost of living crisis means. There is a three-pronged tax coming on ordinary people. First, through tax increasing. Don't get me wrong, I am in favour of a high tax economy. But who pays tax is a very political choice. And this government has decided that ordinary working people will pay more tax in order that the most wealthy will enjoy the best, lowest tax rates they've ever had. That is why I'm part of an all-party campaign to cancel the national insurance increase and bring in a wealth tax in this country which will tax those with the most. Second, they are driving up prices and you don't have to be a mathematician to understand that if inflation is at six or seven percent and wage increases are at one or two and benefits are being frozen then people's real living standards are going to fall and they do that with the shame-faced arrogance to say that in that context people shouldn't ask for a living wage and for a for a wage increase in order to meet that cost of living and the third way in which they're doing it is through the energy crisis as well what we have seen what we are seeing in this country why we are so vulnerable to it is despite the fact we have 40 percent of the world's gas reserves that were coming in mainly made in the uk we have no control over it because unlike many other countries we don't have a national energy company that controls the production of energy and i say to you this my friends that as we go forward to build the resistance to what is about to come upon us. We need to be clear about one thing, because I know not everyone in this crowd supports independence for Scotland as I do. But let me say this, do not be seduced by the Tory argument that somehow the debate about Scotland's constitutional future is a distraction from the real campaign 
about the cost of living or anything else. It is not. They are two sides of the same coin. Because the way in which this country is governed fundamentally determines the fortunes of each and every one of us. And the fact is this, that we are in a situation where we need to have real change, and other speakers have referred to, where we face a situation where the Westminster government and the British state will not make those changes, and the, de the devolution settlement provides a Scottish government that does not have the ability to make those changes. So if we really want to see a national state energy company which will control our renewable resources and exploit them for the people who live here rather for the global rich, if we want to see a fair system of tax and reward with a basic universal income and proper pensions, if we want to see proper investment in our public services and if we want to see weapons of mass destruction removed from the, from the environs of the city, then we have to take the power into our own hands and we have to build a new country where all of those things are achievable. And I want that to be the broadest based campaign. I know that some of you are not yet convinced about that, but believe me, the point of striving for an independent Scotland is not to put a tartan bonnet on the leader of whoever is elected to it. The point of it is to be able to change and recast this economy and this society so that it benefits all of the people who live here rather than the privileged few. So as we build, as we build, as we shoot the resistance, I hope we can work together, comrades. I hope that all of us, despite our party affiliation, can build the biggest, broadest based campaign against the Tories. And I hope also that we will seize the opportunity when it is presented to us to take into our own hands the ability to change things, not just for one day, but forever. Getting a lot of thought. Thanks very much, Tommy. So Tommy Shepherd there making the point about the inequality that exists in our society, which is undeniable right now. And within a few days of that speech being made and that demonstration being held, the Queen had celebrated her platinum jubilee. Holyrood had a debate which consisted largely of people congratulating Her Majesty on, on the length of her service and her commitment to her public duty. And it was all much of a muchness until we got to James Dornan, who had quite a different take on things. Thank you very much, Presiding Officer. Uh, I'd like to thank Stephen Kerr for bringing this motion to the Chamber. And I'd also like to start by wishing Queen Elizabeth the very best after 70 years in public life. Surely at the age of 95 and having just lost her husband of many years, she's entitled now to some time for a bit of peace and quiet. Having said all that, and meaning it sincerely, I do have to speak on behalf of the half of Scotland that supports the Republic and wonder why we're having this motion in this place at this time. It appears to me that this is primarily a motion congratulating longevity. Surely if that's the case, then we all have others, as if not more worthy of this accolade. Take my mother. Next year, when the Queen celebrates her 70th anniversary of her coronation, my mum will be celebrating the 70th anniversary of my birth. Whilst the Queen has had every support known to mankind during the last 70 years, my mum and dad brought me and my two young brothers up firstly in a single end, then a room and kitchen. 
struggling to make ends meet with low and sometimes no wages. So I ask again, what is so special that about any single individual that deserves this motion? The Queen has been very fortunate in, in that she doesn't have a difficult life. She has a life of, of public service, and I accept that, and it can't always be easy. But there's not many royals that are willing to swap places with people who are benefits of the other benefit system. The one that doesn't treat you as if you're special, but as if you're less than human, then should be grateful for the pittance that the state gives you to try and exist on. The Queen, like all of us, has a family full of flaws. I'm always a bit amused at the, the reverence bestowed on this one family. However, given that that reverence exists, I do wonder about the hypocrisy of the Tories, though. This motion comes from the party that lied to the Queen to get Parliament illegally prorogued, had a couple of parties as she mourned, and then waited to bury her husband, and then they have the gall to submit this motion. I make no bones about the fact that I believe in a republic. No family should have the right to be treated as superior because of an accident of birth. They are simply people pampered by this class-ridden society, but still only people. The UK, as is clear from the narrow range of schooling of so many of our leaders, is still a class-based society, to the detriment of those at the bottom end of this skewed measurement of work. The Queen is, of course, at the peak of this pyramid of entitlement. We have a housing crisis, whilst they have multiple houses with massive lands attached. We have food banks, whilst they have banquets. We have people on benefit chased up for every penny, whilst they are given tax breaks to protect their wealth and property. Mr. Dornan, I've got a point. Mr. Dornan, could I just stop you briefly? I've got a point of order in the chamber. Point of order, Rachel Hamilton. Yeah, okay. Thank you, Presiding Officer. I do believe that Mr. Dornan has gone slightly off topic. <laughs> I don't think that is a point of order, and I don't believe that he has deviated from the topic, even if he's deviated from the spirit of the other contributions in the debate. Mr. Dornan. Yes, I'm happy to accept both those points. I read that the Queen is considering retiring next year, and that makes perfect sense to me. However, at that point, the debate should not be, should we skip a generation because we don't like Charles and Camilla, and do like Will and Kate? It should be, has the anachronism that is the royal family run its natural course, and is it time for a republic? Officer, I respect anyone who has continued to work until the age she has, and I sincerely wish her well. But it's time that Scotland and the rest of the UK had a grown-up debate about how we wish to be perceived as subjects of Charles and Camilla, or citizens in the Scottish Republic. Thank you. You're listening to Indie Jigsaw Bits and Pieces. Another short clip now from Broadcasting Scotland, and this is part of a discussion between Maggie Lennon and Jim Fairley, MSP, on their excellent Sunday lunchtime politics show, The Full Scottish. The annual Scottish Household Survey has had to take place by telephone this time because of COVID. It's not the usual face-to-face. -face. Normally 10,000 people are involved in that survey. It's a smaller sample. But the statistics coming out make a pretty encouraging reading, actually, for the Scottish Government. Um, there is generally very high satisfaction with the way the Scottish Government is performing. There's high satisfaction with housing, local services, including healthcare. 
Not so strong on people feeling they've got a particularly strong voice within their local areas to affect decisions, which maybe hints that one of the big things that needs tackled as a programme for government in future in Scotland is how to make local government more accountable or people feel that it's something that they, they can engage with. But um, there was some really interesting and quite heartening um, figures about how people felt about their neighbourhoods. 88% of adults agreed they could rely on someone in their neighbourhood if they felt alone and needed help. Um, 96% of adults rated their neighbourhood as a fairly or very good place to live. 94% um, of households were fairly satisfied with their housing. You know, in a society where we keep sort of saying that community is under threat and people are more selfish and care more about themselves, and I think the pandemic threw up some of that, this has to be quite heartening. Are you, I don't know if you've seen this survey details, that survey information in detail, but I just mm. wondered if you had any thoughts on what that says about that idea of community in Scotland. Well, I, I haven't seen that, um, but I'm hugely heartened to hear what you've just said. And the thing that actually sprung to mind was um, we keep hearing in the chamber that, you know, the, the disaster that the SNP are, the Tories are, oh, you know, it's been 14 years of absolute disaster. And yet we're getting a survey that come back like, like the one you've just quoted, talking about society. And it was their leader, Margaret Thatcher, who said there is no such thing as society. Indeed. Um, there is no such thing as communities working together. You know, Norman Tebbett was the guy who says, get on your bike and go and get a job elsewhere, as they dismantled huge swathes of communities right across the central belt and the, and the, and the industrialised parts of Scotland. So I'm hugely encouraged to hear that report. And I think what, the, what we have is that genuine sense of coming together. And if people are looking for more local accountability, I see that as a good thing. I see that as them wanting to be engaged in the decisions that are made in their local area. So, so I'm 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 very heartened by that. That's you, you've cheered my morning up there. Thank you very much. <laughs> you can watch Broadcasting Scotland for free on their YouTube channel. At the moment, they're putting on Scotland at seven every night at seven o'clock, a news current affairs roundup, and at the weekend there is the full Scottish on a Sunday lunchtime. As with the rest of the indie media, they rely on donations. So if you are able to support them, I'm sure they'd be very grateful. And you can find out how to do that on their website, broadcastingscotland.scot. The long-awaited report from Sue Gray into the Partygate scandal at Downing Street was released, or rather not the report, but an update to the investigation. The report itself is not being released because finally the Met Police have decided they'd like to investigate. So they've asked for large chunks of it to be redacted. Still, there was a fiery and passionate exchange in the House of Commons this afternoon. SNP Westminster leader Ian Blackford showed himself to be a man of integrity and courage when he pointed out that Johnson is a liar. However, having spoken truth to power... Ian Blackford was rewarded by Speaker of the House, Lindsay Hoyle, trying to get him to change his words and then finally throwing him out. By the time he'd got to the end of the sentence, Blackford had already left. Ian Blackford, mic drop moment. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Can I say it's a pleasure to follow the former Prime Minister and perhaps her behaviour in office, like many that went before her, was about dignity, about the importance of the office, of respect of truthfulness and the Prime Minister will be well advised to focus on those that have not dishonoured the office 
like he has done. Mr Speaker, we stand here today faced with the systematic decimation of public trust in government and the institutions of the state, and at its heart, a Prime Minister, a Prime Minister being investigated by the police. So here we have it, the long-awaited Sue Gray report. What a farce. It was carefully engineered to be a fact-finding exercise with no conclusions. Now we find it's a fact-finding exercise with no facts. So let's talk facts. The Prime Minister has told the House that all guidance was completely followed. There was no party. Covid rules were followed and that I believed it was a work event. Nobody, nobody believed them then. And nobody, nobody believes you now, Prime Minister. That is the crux. No ifs, no buts. He has willfully, willfully misled Parliament. It's bad enough. Order! Inadvertent. Misled the House will be acceptable. Misled the House is not acceptable. Withdraw inadvertently. The Prime Minister inadvertently told the House on the 8th of December that no parties had taken place and then had to admit that they had. It's bad enough, Mr Speaker, that the Prime Minister's personal integrity is in the ditch, but this murky business is tainting everything around it. It is our intention to submit a motion instructing the Prime Minister to publish the Great Report in full. Will the Prime Minister obey an instruction by this House to publish as required? Mr Speaker, amidst allegations of blackmail by Tory whips, the members opposite have been defending the indefensible. Wait for the report, we were told. Well, here it is, and it tells us very little, except it does state that there were failures of leadership and judgment by different parts of number 10. It states that some events should not have been allowed to take place. That is the Prime Minister's responsibility. If there is any honour, any honour in public life, then he would resign. Where is this? And he laughs. And the Prime Minister laughs. We ought to remind ourselves in this House that 150,000 plus of our citizens have lost their lives. Family members that couldn't be with them. And that is the sight that people will remember. A Prime Minister laughing at our public. I extend the hand of friendship to all those that have sacrificed. I certainly do not extend the hand of friendship to the Prime Minister, who is no friend of mine. Where is the shame? Where is the dignity? Meanwhile, the police investigation will drag on and on. Every moment the Prime Minister stays, trust in government and the rule of law is ebbing away. The litany of rule-breaking, the culture of contempt, the utter disdain for the anguish felt by the public who have sacrificed so much. What the public see is a man who has debased the office of Prime Minister, shrinked responsibility, dogged accountability and blamed his staff at every turn, presided over sleaze and corruption and tainted the very institutions of the state. In short, Mr Speaker, this is a man... 
Well, they can laugh. They can laugh. But the public know. The public know this is a man they can no longer trust. He has been investigated by the police. He misled the House. He must now resign. Order. You'll have to withdraw that last comment. Mr Speaker, I gave the evidence of the 8th of December. Order. Order. You're going to have to withdraw misled. Mr Speaker, the Prime Minister has misled the House. Unless you withdraw, I'll have to stop, and that's not good. Just withdraw the words. I am standing up for my constituents that know that this Prime Minister has lied and misled the House. Give me the paper. Give me the paper. Inadvertently misled. I'll give you one more chance. As leader of the SNP, I don't want to have to throw you out. I'm going to give you this chance. Please. Please to power. That man has misled the House. Shut up. I'm sorry it's come to this, and I'm sorry that the leader of the party has not got the decency to just withdraw those words in order that this debate can be represented by all political leaders. Would you like to inadvertently? If the Prime Minister has inadvertently misled the House, then I will state that. Right, we're going to leave it at that. Can I just say, I take it the Honourable Member has withdrawn it, the right Honourable Member. That the Prime Minister may have inadvertently misled the House. Put, should, order. To help me, to help the House, you withdraw your earlier comment and replace it with inadvertently. It's not my fault if the Prime Minister can't be trusted to tell the truth. Under the power given to me by Standing Order Number 43, I order the Honourable Member to withdraw immediately from the House. From the House. It's, it's, it's all right, we don't need to bother. Right, let us move on. You're listening to Indie Jigsaw Bits and Pieces. On the 22nd of February, Neil Gray led a debate in Holyrood urging the Scottish Parliament to withhold consent to the UK's Nationality and Borders Bill. I find my first debate as a minister is about a bill that I find repugnant and regressive. I should have preferred to be talking about how Scotland is striving to live up to our global responsibilities as a place of welcome and sanctuary. Instead, I'm talking about the UK Government's Nationality and Borders Bill, which the UNHCR have said is fundamentally at odds with the UK's international obligations under the Refugee Convention. The bill sets out significant changes to UK asylum and immigration law, but it misdiagnoses the problems with the UK immigration and asylum policy. It will not achieve the aims that Home Secretary claims because it does not address the problem of incompetent management and ideologically misdirected policy by the Home Office and the UK Government. The bill will negatively impact people, communities and the provision of services. This government condemns the bill and the UK government's inhumane, hostile environment. The Scottish government developed our pioneering New Scots approach in a partnership with COSLA and the Scottish Refugee Council. Our public services, third sector and communities work together to support our vision for a welcoming Scotland where refugees and asylum seeker integration is supported from day one. We are ambitious about embedding human rights and trauma-informed practice to improve how we support vulnerable people, including victims of human trafficking, domestic abuse survivors and children. 
We recognise that we need an inflow inward flow of people to support our economy and the growth of our businesses, to develop services and to support strong, diverse communities. We have long advocated for a flexible, humane approach to migration based on the principles of dignity and respect. All of this is in jeopardy as a result of this UK Government Bill. The Bill is a long and complex piece of legislation introduced last July and roundly criticised since. The pace at which this sweeping and regressive piece of legislation has been pursued is purportedly due to an urgent need to give the Home Secretary more powers to fix the UK's broken asylum system. But let me be clear. The provisions in this bill will not fix the problems with the UK asylum and immigration systems. Instead, they will create barriers which will damage our communities, pushing already vulnerable people to the margins of society. They will add unnecessary complexity to the already challenging asylum system, restricting rights for refugees, based not on their need for protection, but how they arrived in the UK. Vulnerable people seeking protection will be criminalised and pushback provisions will increase risk to life at sea. The door will be opened to offshore the accommodation of people seeking asylum, and there will be an increased risk of destitution as no recourse to public funds restrictions will apply to more people. And the Home Secretary will also have the power to revoke British citizenship from people without notice, which is quite astonishing. Alex Hamilton. I'm very grateful to the Minister for giving, giving way, and I welcome him to his place. Does he agree with me that uh, age assessment for the purposes of child protection is a devolved matter and that properly sits with social workers in an ethical framework here in Scotland and with the Home Office in an immigration context? Does he also accept that quasi-scientific assessments to determine the age of children or a young person can be invasive and risk causing further trauma, and if incorrect, can have the devastating consequence of having that young person return to the place from which they came? Minister. I thank Alex Cole-Hamilton for that intervention, as it preempts some of what I'm going to say, almost word for word, um, actually, and I, I fully agree with his intervention, and I look forward to him supporting uh, this motion uh, tonight. Uh, the bill provisions will increase the time people spend in limbo, waiting for a decision from the Home Office and unable to fully rebuild their lives. We already know that this puts pressure on people. It is detrimental to mental health, prevents people seeking asylum, using their skills in the workplace and restricts access to financial support unless people are destitute. And this in turn shifts costs to our local authorities, public services, the third sector and communities. And the provisions in this bill will punish people who need protection and do nothing to tackle the underlying in inhumane issues with the asylum and immigration system the UK Government has created. And if all that weren't bad enough, as organisations such as the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants and the British Red Cross have pointed out, possibly worst of all, the bill risks creating the perfect conditions for criminals to exploit vulnerable adults and children. It doesn't just misdiagnose the problem, presiding officer, it is making the symptoms worse. The Scottish Government's questions to the Home Office about key issues in the consideration of legislative consent were met with delays and a refusal to accept the need to, get, uh, to grant legislative consent. However, Scottish Ministers are clear that this bill will impact heavily on Scotland's devolved competencies in a myriad of ways. Therefore, on 1 February, the Scottish Government lodged a legislative consent memorandum in the Social Justice Secretary's name, setting out two specific clauses which trigger the requirement for legislative consent. 
The UK Government have form when it comes to ignoring the wishes of this Parliament, and I feel they will not, uh, fear they will not pay heed to the memorandum, just as they have ignored our concerns, the concerns of the Welsh Senate, and the concerns of many charities and support organisations. But it is important that the Scottish Government is clear on our position and that we raise our opposition to provisions which will impact on devolved areas, as well as our overall opposition to the damage that will be caused by this Bill. So, Presiding Officer, let me turn now to the two clauses raised in the memorandum. And to be clear, the assertion in the Conservative amendment that the provisions do not fall with legislative con uh, competence of this Parliament is entirely false. Uh, clause 49 legislates in the devolved area of provision of care and support under children's legislation. The bill creates a national age assessment board empowered and resourced to scrutinise age assessment determinations. This includes those made by social workers in Scotland for devolved purposes, if local authorities refer an age assessment to the board, the outcome of the board's assessment will be binding on them for devolved functions. This reach into devolved services clearly goes way beyond reserved matters of asylum and immigration. The bill also enables the board to use scientific techniques as part of age assessment. This is something that the Scottish Government guidance has consistently advised against on child welfare and unreliability grounds. And this is a position shared by medical experts, such as the Royal College of Paediatrics and Child Health and the Royal College of Nursing. It is a position that the United Nations Human Rights Committee describe as invasive, potentially harmful, and likely to result in children being wrongly assessed as adults. Concerns echoed by the Children's Commissioners for Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. These proposals are a retrograde step which will not protect the welfare of these highly vulnerable children and in fact could cause harm. The second clause in the LCM Clause 58 would constrain Scottish Ministers in terms of how any future Scottish competent authority could make decisions about who is a victim of human trafficking. And it will require late provision of information to support of a modern slavery or trafficking claim to be considered as a damage to, damaging to a person's credibility. Um, so what I reflect on when I consider the Nationality and Borders Bill is its basic lack of humanity, how regressive it is. The UK was a founding signatory of the 1951 UN Convention. It played a key role in developing the principles of the Convention and, as recently as 2018, reaffirmed these principles in the Global Compact on Refugees. And yet these obligations are meaningless under this Bill. Not just my views, but the views of the UNHCR and the opinion of legal experts who have considered the Bill on behalf of the Scottish Refugee Council. This is deeply worrying, particularly as the Bill sets out an interpretation of the 1951 Convention that effectively seeks to establish the current government's definitions as the basis for consideration by UK courts. So, in conclusion, Presiding Officer, there is one area where I agree with the Home Secretary. The UK's asylum and immigration system is broken, but the Nationality and Borders Bill will not fix it. This bill could have been an opportunity for the UK government to create a humane, fair immigration and, uh, and asylum system. That opportunity has been missed. This bill will jeopardise the rights of thousands of people long into the future and have a profound impact on our society. It is anti-refugee, anti-human rights and anti-democratic. So I urge this parliament to make clear its opposition to this bill and I move the, amend the motion in my name. The next question is that motion 3270 in the name of Neil Gray on Nationality and Borders Bill UK legislation be agreed. Are we all agreed? Yes. The Parliament is not agreed, therefore we will move to a vote and members should cast their votes now. The result of the vote on motion 3270 in the name of Neil Gray is yes 94, no 29, 
There were no abstentions. The motion is therefore agreed. That concludes decision time. And no prizes for guessing that the 29 who voted against the motion were the Scottish Conservative Party. Uh, still with Holyrood, this time with the Constitution, Europe, External Affairs and Culture Committee, there was a witness session on the 24th of February with Professor Anand Menon, who is the Director of UK in a Changing Europe. He was there to talk about a regulatory divergence tracker that they were devising to look at the UK separating off from the EU. In his preamble, he made the statement that immigration was no longer an issue and looked somewhat bemused when the chair of the committee told him that Holyrood had just refused consent to the UK's Borders and Nationalities Bill, as we've just been listening to. I would encourage you to maybe go and watch it on Scottish Parliament TV. Professor Anand also left the clear impression he was unfamiliar with much of the concept of devolution. This next very short clip with Mark Ruskell asking him a question will give you a flavour of that. You know, we're meeting in Scotland today. We've got vast renewable resources. Um, if you were to, to devise a green taxonomy for Scotland, maybe creating a financial centre for green investment in Edinburgh, um, you know, what, what would that look like? Can, can that exist within a, an EU uh, taxonomy that's perhaps tilted in a slightly different direction or, or emphasises other technologies over, over others? I don't know if you've got any, any thoughts on that. Can you, can you just clarify, I wasn't not 100% certain what you're getting at? You're listening to Indie Jigsaw Bits and Pieces. This month, we had the Scotwind auction. Simon Hodge, Chief Executive of Crown Estate Scotland, said that today's results are a fantastic vote of confidence in Scotland's ability to transform our energy sector. And in addition to environmental benefits, this is a major investment in the Scottish economy with around £700 million being delivered straight into the public finances and billions of pounds worth of supply chain commitments. So this was the topic of conversation on Common Wheels Policy Podcast, which is chaired by Dr. Craig DL. In this episode, he was chatting with two members of the Common Wheels Energy Group, Ian Wright and Keith Baker. So we're big fans of the Common Wheel Policy Podcast. This clip comes straight from the podcast. And if you'd like to hear the whole thing, you can get it on the commonweal.scot website. And it's well worth listening to. So let's look at the, 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 the scale of this project. We did say that this is the largest auction of Scottish offshore wind um, in, in Scotland's history so far. Um, it's estimated, that, well, the promises that have been made by the, the folk who win the bids total up to just a little under 25 gigawatts of, of energy, compared to an initial estimate from Crown Estate Scotland of, of 10 gigawatts. How does that compare to Scotland's existing generation capacity? What, what, what give us an idea of that that scale? I would look at it in terms of the the demand in Scotland. Now, these are historical figures from the days of working um, solely in Scotland, but um, the total required capacity uh, would have been about seven gigawatts. Certainly, these figures are out of date, but it would be of that order. By the time you start electrifying everything and putting in uh, reserve capacity, you're probably getting up towards, let's be generous and say 15 gigawatts. So between the, uh, the capacity that's being built on shore 
the capacity that's been planned for in uh, SSE's business plan for the, the current price control period and this extra 25 gigawatts, you can see that most of the capacity will be to, to provide energy for export. So basically, we're using the uh, resources of Scotland to power someone else's economy. We need to be developing our economy to use the power that uh, we're producing locally. One question, again, I got, I got asked um, over the last few days was on that disparity between the, the initial estimate, Crown Estate estimated to be able to host 10 gigawatts of capacity in this area, but the promises have come in at 25. How were the bidders able to promise so much more? Um, is this, again, just Crown Estate underestimating the value of Scottish resources? I think you have to assume that's the case because there are developments in turbine technology happening all the time. It's not static. When I first uh, started in the wind farm development business, we would put up a couple of 800 kilowatt machines and call it wind farm. And nobody would consider building anything with turbines as, with as small capacity as that. So the offshore turbines are massively bigger. They are absolutely huge. Capacities of 12 megawatts and 14 megawatts, um, if not already delivered, are very close to it. So you don't need as many turbines to produce that amount of capacity as you would have in the past. It's all about spacing turbines so that the uh, turbulence from one turbine does not affect the power developed by adjacent turbines. So it's You've got to be clever about the way you lay things out, but that's uh, fairly well understood. And I think uh, the developers who have won options um, have plenty of experience and know what they can produce there. So I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't say that they were the ones that had made the mistake. The scale of the turbines themselves is something that fascinates me just from a, an engineering perspective. And, and it's something that's often not really appreciated about offshore turbines in particular because we just don't see that scale of structure on land for fairly obvious reasons. Um, but you are talking about structures that are much larger than buildings, wingspan, you know, blade spans of hundreds of metres. Yes. What are the implications for the national grid, UK's electrical grid, for a project of this scale? Can it handle another 25 gigawatts coming in from the north of Scotland? Well, it's not just the GB grid that has to handle it because part of the whole uh, strategy of National Grid is to uh, develop interconnectors with neighbouring systems. So there's the connection to Norway, which is 720 kilometres in length. I think that's the world's longest high voltage DC link. There's uh, a link to Denmark and there's also the links on the south coast to France and Belgium. So there's a lot of toing and froing of power. The whole principle of the European target model for the electricity market was to enable the interchange of significant quantities of power between transmission zones to try and equalise prices across the whole of Europe. One of the consequences of Brexit is that the flexibility that was inherent in that design where the um, capacity booked in interconnectors was part of the option process of the, of the power. And the system calculated what the best flows between different networks would be to give the optimal price. That's gone now. So you have to bid in a different kind of way, which doesn't have that flexibility, which is more expensive, leads to greater price swings. And so it's 
a lot to do with the market in which the energy is traded, as well as the physical capability of the wires to transport power. It depends as well. You think that there's uh, an actual finite capacity of a cable, but there is a lot to do with your security standard as well. And there's also the temperature of the cable. So a cable can carry more power in winter when it's cold than it will in summer when it's warm. And that's to do with how much it sags. So we'll leave the clip there. Um, but I think you'll agree that's a really, really interesting topic. And if you'd like to hear the whole podcast, it's on the commonweal.scot website. And thanks to Craig DL for sharing it with us. And back to Holyrood for FMQs, when a question was asked about the next referendum. For some reason, that seems to have ruffled a few on the Tory benches. And then Murdo Fraser, the gift that keeps on giving, chimes in with a question about pensions. Question number four, Stuart McMillan. Thank you, Jenny Oster, to ask the First Minister whether she will provide an update on the Scottish Government's plans to hold an independence referendum. First Minister. Uh, we intend to. Uh, firstly, uh, the people of Scotland, of course, elected this government last May. Uh, their democratic decision was to elect a parliament with the biggest ever majority of MSPs in favour of an independence referendum. So in line with the clear mandate given by people in that election, preparatory work is underway so that a referendum can be held, as I've said, as the COVID crisis passes um, and COVID permitting within the first half of this parliamentary term. And then uh, the people of Scotland will have the choice to take our future into our own hands instead of being at the mercy uh, of a disreputable, discredited UK government. Stuart McMillan. I thank the First Minister for that reply and the First Minister will be aware that since the referendum in 2014 a number of promises made by the No campaign, including Mr Sarwar's party, have been broken, including remaining in the EU and also protecting the lower costs of food and energy. And also this week, Sue Gray's report it said that the parties that the Prime Minister and his colleagues put on were difficult to justify and there were failures in leadership and judgment from within number 10 and the Cabinet Office. And that's before the Met judges whether there was any criminality involved. Does the First Minister therefore agree with me that, as the SNP and Scottish Green Party manifestos offered, that it's time to deliver in what the people voted for, have a referendum, win that referendum, and then deliver our independence from a wretched and certainly seemingly corrupt Westminster? First Minister. Well, it's correct to say that I, I think, uh, and I think I can say this without fear of contradiction, that virtually every promise made by the No Cam campaign in 2014 has since been broken. And uh, the crowning one of all of those, of course, uh, was the fact uh, that, according to them, the only way, the only way to protect Scotland's membership of the European Union was to vote no to independence. Uh, and here we are, ripped out of the EU against Colleagues. our will. See, there's. There's a key point here, presenting officer, because independence is about aspiration, it's about empowerment, it's about taking our destiny into our own hands so that we can build a better future. And I think it's because they fear the power of that positive argument that Tories, Labour, Liberal Democrats want to deny Scotland the choice. And of course, what is, what is the alternative right now? To be governed... First Minister, First Minister... The First Minister is responding to the question. No one else in the Chamber is responding to the question at this moment, and I'm sure we'd all like to hear the answer. Thank you. 
Any political party in this chamber that was confident in their arguments around independence would not be desperate to deny the people of Scotland the right to make that choice. And the alternative to independence is to continue to be governed by parties at Westminster that we don't vote for. And right now, that is by a disreputable, discredited government and a Prime Minister, frankly, with no integrity, no shame and no moral compass. A Prime Minister that even Douglas Ross doesn't think is fit for office. Scotland can do better than that, and with independence, we will do better than that. Thank you, Presiding Officer. Is it really now the SNP position that pensions in an independent Scotland would be paid by taxpayers in England? First Minister. I think he should pay more attention to the UK Government's position on this. He might find uh, it gives them a bit of a shock. But let me, let me set out... Let me set out the position. The Tories are really, really nervous about this argument. You can, you can feel the discomfort coming from them because they know when the people of Scotland get the chance to escape Westminster governments and take our future into our own hands, they are going to say yes to independence. When, when Scotland votes for independence, as was the case in 2014, the distribution of existing UK liabilities and assets, including those related to pensions, will be subject to negotiation and Scotland will fully pay its way in that. But the key point here is for those in receipt of pensions and it is what the Minister for Pensions at the time in the UK Government, Steve Webb, confirmed, that people with accumulated rights would continue to receive the current levels of state pension in an independent Scotland. People will notice no difference. So perhaps the difference they might notice is that an independent Scotland might be able to improve the level of pensions yeah. rather than have, as the UK does, one of the lowest pension levels in the whole of the developed world. Back at Westminster, there was an opposition day debate on the cost of living crisis called for by the Labour Party. Peter Grant, SNP MP, made a excellent contribution to that debate. It's too long to include in this show because it was 15 minutes worth, but it is available on our complimentary YouTube channel, which is Indie Live Extra. Well worth listening to. He makes some excellent points. But you really can't beat this tiny little exchange between Peter and, I don't know, a Tory. I don't even know which one it is. <laughs> uh, I'm listening to Kevin's argument. He's making, I believe, the point that Brexit is leading to some of the issues possibly we have. But if that's the case, why are we seeing even greater levels of inflation uh, and unemployment in other countries currently inside uh, the EU. This is a clearly a global aspect, uh, rising costs, rising inflation, nothing to do with Brexit. You know, Mr Deputy Speaker, isn't it remarkable how this great global super, superpower, this global leader of the free world, this super global economy, every time anything goes wrong, it's global's fault, it's no our fault. It wasn't me. A big global done it and ran away. And I did see one figure at the weekend, Mr Deputy Speaker, that said that the price of energy in France has gone up by about 4%. Here it's gone up by 10 times that, even more than 10 times that for a lot of people. Um, I mean, I'm only quoting back to the, the Honourable Gentleman um, figures from the government's own office for budget responsibility. If the government don't trust them, then maybe the government trusts as few people as the number of people that trust the government. A big global did it and ran away. I love that. <laughs>
Okay, that's just about at the end of the show for this month. So I'm just going to finish with a bit of a bit of mutual plugging, actually. Leslie Riddick, one of our great heroines, runs an organisation called Nordic Horizons, and they put on discussions between people from various different Nordic countries. We quite often carry clips from them. The last, the last one was on renewable energy. And there's another one coming up on the 10th of March. This one is focusing on the Nordic country's response to the Russian threat and the the Ukraine situation. Independence Live will be broadcasting it. 10th of March, very well worth watching, I'm sure. We'll be tuning into that. And Leslie, who of course has her own podcast, the Leslie Riddick podcast, was talking on that about a Nordic Horizons event that she'd just been to in Dublin. And as part of that, she gave a lovely little plug to us at Independence Live, which we're always very grateful to receive compliments. <laughs> so here's Leslie just to round off the show. The, the event that I was over there for, which was kind of the Irish setting up their own ver- version of Nordic Horizons, which was a very cheery meeting, albeit one that wasn't streamed. And it was something that just made me realise how, you know, how much I, I think independent supporters have just got so used to using all the technology now and the brilliant independence live rocks up to practically any event so that you know people that are sitting in the furthest parts of scotland can be part of things you know and and it would be almost unthinkable to work things otherwise now whereas you know that event was successful in its own you know by its own standards but it was you know, a set of people in a room, which these days doesn't sort of feel good enough, you know, to hear. If you, especially if you've uh, got people coming over from Denmark and Scotland and so on, it feels like you want to share that. And thanks, Leslie. That's exactly what we're here for, to share, get the messages out there. So if you're listening to this podcast, wherever you get your podcasts, don't forget to subscribe. And if you know anybody that you think would enjoy it, would find it interesting, please do share with them. It does help us to get the message out there. Independence Live has got a YouTube channel and we're just in the process of setting up a podcast page on their website as well. I'll give you more information about that next month. But in the meantime, we do have a small YouTube channel called Indie Live Extra. You know, if I use the audio for this podcast, sometimes the little video clips are really worth seeing as well. So you'll find them on there along with all manner of other odds and ends that probably just haven't quite made it into one of our other shows. Anyway, that's it for this month. Been a very, very hectic February. Uh, There's still a couple of days left, so who knows what could happen. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you all next month. Bye now. You've been listening to Indie Jigsaw Bits and Pieces. Indie Jigsaw Bits and Pieces.